This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. another episode of Bass Fishing for Noobs as part of the Paddle and Fin podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Susie Q. Uh, unfortunately, we do not have Sean with us today. Um, if you guys all could keep him in your thoughts, your prayers, uh, whatever you guys uh, believe in or whatnot. Um, many of you guys may not know, um, his mom passed, uh, this past Monday. So, uh, definitely going to need, uh, lots of, uh, thoughts and prayers and warm thoughts sending his way. Um, so he'll be, uh, you know, with, uh, he'll be gone from the show just for a little bit, uh, but hopefully we'll have him back here soon. So you get to deal with my lovely face and voice, uh, for a little while. Um, but uh, wanted to kind of share with you guys uh, just a little bit again, if you guys haven't been with us for a little bit here, um, we do have some uh, dates set. Uh, if I can get my window uh, set here, bear with me here. I haven't done a solo show in quite a while, so this is a little bit different. Anywho, um, we have the date set for next year's open 
on the world famous Dale Hollow Lake in Tennessee. So mark your calendars now. Get your PTO put in Saturday, April 27th, Sunday, April 28th. Of course, hosted by the folks at Eastport Marina. We had the biggest two-day payout. And I mean each day payout for big bass. Day one was over two grand. Day two was over two grand. And I think first place was, uh, I think, almost close to two grand as well. I mean, of course, you know, the guy who won tournament this year just knocked it all out of the park and walked away with almost, uh, you know, seven grand. But anywho, mark your calendars, get your time off, come down, spend the spring 2024, Dale Hollow, April 27th, April 28th. Come on down to Dale Hollow, Tennessee where the awesomeness is going to happen. So on this episode of Kettle and Fin for News, we have a very special guest. And if you may not remember, uh, we had a special guest, Scylla Johnson had uh, mentioned that she knew this gentleman who would we had reached out to, uh, Mr. John Odenkirk. <laughs> Welcome to the show, John. Glad to have you here. I think you might be, oh, there you go. Now you're unmuted. Welcome. Pleasure to be here, Susie. Thanks for inviting me along. Yes, thank you, thank you. So yeah, John, um, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, how you got into it, all that fun stuff, and we'll jump right on in. Well, I, I've got I've got the, uh, the dream job. I am living the dream. I, I'm fond of, and I didn't hear this from anybody. I actually made it up myself, which, you know, I'm not the brightest one, but I like to say I'm never working and I'm always working because that's a fact. Um, my life and my job are so intertwined that um, I, it's hard to differentiate. I mean, I still have to fill out a time recording form for the agency, but honestly, like now, I mean, I'm not recording on this. This time is not going to go down as working time, but this is, this is my life. Um, so uh, since I was a little wee lad uh, fishing in the ponds and creeks near my house, I ended up at Virginia tech. I'm from Virginia. got a bachelor's in fisheries, went to graduate school in Tennessee where I caught a giant smallmouth bass in Dale hollow reservoir when I was in graduate school with my professor. Um, only one fish that either of us caught that whole trip, but it was, a, it was a beautiful smallmouth. Any, and I got out of graduate school, went to Florida, worked on sturgeon and striped bass for a while on Panama City Beach, the Redneck Riviera. Loved it, but had to leave in three years because my wife hated it. And um, came back to Virginia, where we're both from. And uh, that was a long time ago. It's, it's scary to think how long I've been now with this agency, DWR. Uh, crazy. But um, I'm, essentially, I'm doing what I always kind of dreamed and hoped I would do. I'm managing a small 12-county district in the area where I grew up and fished as a kid. Um, some of the same resources where I caught my first this or that species. I'm, I'm now managing those resources and, and it's pretty cool. It's, it's been a pleasure and, and uh, I have a lot of gratitude for the ability to be able to do that. And so I, I try to share what I know with my constituents because uh, Virginia is still one of the few hook and bullet agencies out there. Most state game and fish agencies have gone to some other alternative funding mechanisms and Virginia's relatively unique, not that that's a good thing right now, but 
Uh, we're still we're still sponsored completely by sportsmen, fishermen, uh, anglers, boaters, hunters. Uh, and so I've got basically two jobs. I, I want to make fishing good uh, because you all are paying my salary and I want to conserve the resource for future generations. And usually those things match up pretty well. You know, one percent of the time, maybe not, but most of the time they do. So um, anyway, uh, and then this. Yeah. So uh, anything you want to ask me, I'm, I'm wide open. Awesome. So um, tell us a little bit like what um, what your days look like. Well, my days are actually pretty cool because they're very diverse and unique. And uh, having 12 counties, essentially uh, the upper elevation of my work area, I've got wild brook trout habitat. That's our, our has to be the Virginia state fish, our only native salmonid on the East Coast, um, the brook trout. And so tomorrow or the next day, I might be doing a backpack electrofishing survey of a wild brook trout stream and, and, and something you could jump over. Uh, and then the next day I'll be on a big rig on the tidal river, you know, maybe chasing striped bass or snakeheads or a tidal largemouth bass uh, or, you know, anything in between. Uh, we've got public fishing reservoirs that we own or manage. Uh, we've got uh, non-tidal rivers where smallmouth bass are the premier fishery. We've got tidal systems where largemouth bass and, and now snakeheads are premier fishery with bowfin. Uh, a native, a native, unique fish we have along the southeast part of the, this country. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, it's really cool, and I'm blessed to have such a diverse. Uh, you, you never get bored. I tell you that you never get bored. <laughs> I bet not. Um, so, when you're doing your surveys, what exactly? I guess, like, what data are you collecting? And like, I guess, like, what? Um, I what? Uh, I guess what what are your like main um, what are your main goals and objectives for what you're doing each time you go out yeah. in the field? Yeah, that, that's a great question, and thank you for asking that. And so the people that are listening, like we didn't at, we didn't these are not typed up questions. I have no idea what she's going to ask me. <laughs> this is something that is so overlooked, and something when I give presentations to angler groups or constituents that I try to to drive home because a lot of we, we spend a lot of our time collecting data. Um, but if we're not collecting our data in a way that are meaningful, then we're wasting our time and your time because you're paying me. Um, so when we're out there on the water, primarily most of the time we're using a gear called electrofishing. It could be a backpack. It could be a tote barge. It could be a big boat unit. But we're, we're putting electricity in the water to stun fish, a.k.a. get a sample of fish. And then the two things we're primarily interested in is abundance and that's usually, we, we, we couch that with this term relative abundance. It's not absolute. Usually we can't tell you exactly how many fish are in this body of water. Sometimes we can, if we do like a marker capture experiment or something. But most of the time we're working on this thing called relative abundance, which is the number of fish that we catch per some unit of effort. For some people that's a, you know, 100 meters of shoreline. For us, it's per fish per hour. And so we'll do we'll do a bunch of runs, of replicate runs. So we'll get a sum of variance about an average, so we can have a meaningful comparison with last year or this lake or whatever. And and, and so what we're doing is we're doing these transects with this electrofishing gear, and we're, we're stunning fish, not hurting them, put them in a live well. When we're done with the run, we measure them because that's the second most important thing is size structure. So these are the two big things we're interested in: relative abundance and size structure. With those two things only, we can pretty much manage a fishery. 
sometimes we need additional information. And, and, and the, the, the three things that, that drive any population are recruitment, that's birth rate, growth, and then mortality. If you know those three things, you can describe any population and manage it completely, you know, satisfactorily within its carrying capacity. So sometimes we need to do other things like maybe tag a fish or maybe sacrifice a fish to get certain information that we would normally be able to get. Um, and so but typically those are not the main things we're interested in are size structure and abundance. And, and that's why when we only have a narrow window of time, you know, say for largemouth bass, you know, they're vulnerable because electrophysians is shallow water gear. And typically largemouth bass and other centrarchids in that family spawn in shallow water. So there's a window of time in the spring when those fish are vulnerable to our electrofishing gear. And so most of our surveys are done between early to mid-April and early to mid-May. So we've got one month to knock out, and that's why things have to go on a rotation depending on um, you know, the priority of, of a given resource. Some resources like, say, Lake Anna in Virginia is a very, that's, that's my largest reservoir that I manage. It's 10,000 acres, and people come from all over Pennsylvania and Jersey and out Maryland to fish that in the spring. It's a, a nuclear, you know, it's thermally enriched because it cools mm. a nuclear plant, um, but it's an excellent, excellent bass fishery. And people come from all over to fish it so you know and because there's guides there's there's uh you know ramps and fish houses and, and people who make their living on that lake outfitters you know that to me that that elevates its stature so we survey that resource every year some lakes maybe you get once every four or five even six years uh if they're a municipal lake or water supply the fishery never changes you know so anyway we have to keep that in mind when we're doing setting up our rotation because of that narrow survey window Wow, gosh, <laughs> that's quite a bit. <laughs> so now are you, so I understand, you know, the, the fish species and everything too, but do you ever look at like, you know, external factors too, like, you know, vegetation or like other external factors too? Like, are you looking for like pollutants or any other things like that during your surveys? Typically, when we do our surveys, we're just interested in the fisheries aspect of it. We have a sister agency here in Virginia called DEQ, Department of Environmental Quality. They are more in charge of making sure the water is clean, or free of pollutants. Gotcha. So they've got very stringent recommendations or regulations that, 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 that go along with called state water quality standards. And, uh, you know, if, if, if a resource is listed as impaired, then there have to be steps taken to try to correct that action and bring that water into a non-impaired status. And then there's also the Virginia Department of Health. We work with collecting fish, like for instance, snakeheads, very, very uh, high profile fish now in Virginia and the mid-Atlantic and also the Midwest. And we're pushing people to eat snakeheads and blue catfish. And, and we wanna be sure that these fish are safe to eat since we're pushing people to eat them. So sure. we have that extra Surveys with VDA to make sure that these fish, you know, the low in PCBs, mercury, things primarily we're looking for. And honestly, the snakeheads are some of the cleanest fish we've ever seen. And I think that's because they feed lower in the food chain uh, and they're eating very small banded killifish you know, because of their habitat. They just eat whatever's in front of their face, even if it's a really big snakehead. 
they, they're still eating these little minnows. So they're not bioaccumulating and they grow pretty rapidly too. So they're not bioaccumulating the PCBs like maybe some of the bigger blue catfish might be, which is a concern on, on larger blue catfish in the tidal systems were in the east side of Virginia. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lots of different factors to kind of we'll get a lot going <laughs> Yeah, there sure is. <laughs> now, um, we had Scylla on, you know, and she was definitely talking about, you know, the snakehead and everything and how you guys were kind of pushing to, you know, get people to, yeah, catch them and eat them. You know, they're, they're not bad or anything. But I know they were kind of, um, you know, kind of frowned upon when they were first, you know, introduced innocence you know because they weren't sure like how they were going to affect you know the food chains and everything i don't know if you want to maybe give some more insight into that well i i could probably talk for four or five hours <laughs> j just about snakeheads and the way they kind of broke onto the scene and um but i, I try to encapsulate it into maybe two or three minutes um <laughs> Essentially, in 2004, well, they showed up in 2004 in the tidal Potomac River system. Okay, that that spans Maryland, Washington, D.C., and Virginia. And prior to that, they were found in a couple small stormwater ponds in Maryland where they were eradicated. So during the couple year lead up to 2004, when they were in the tidal Potomac, there was a lot of um, media focus, attention, some like Hollywood B movies. And, uh, <laughs> yes. It, let's just say it was a really good news story, whether you were a radio news outlet, a print news outlet, a blog, whatever, you sunk your teeth into the snakehead story. I think it was on every late night show. It, it, it's just a great story because here's these fish that eat people and walk around on land. And, and, and it just it just went, you know, it just went way over the top. Mm -hmm. So when it they showed up viral like, for its time. Oh, yep. Yes, it absolutely did. So when they showed up in 04, um, you know, and we didn't honestly know at that time. All we knew was the hype, uh, the hype that was repeated from a comic book strip that became gospel overnight. And, and so we were like, wow, this is really bad. Well, come to find out over almost 20 years now, um, it's probably not really bad. We're still a little concerned about if they get into certain systems where we have a, a, an endangered species or something. That hasn't happened yet, but we're and people are illegally moving them. We made it. We don't want people moving fish. Period. Any fish, it's you need you need authorization to stock anything in public water. And public water is anything basically, other than a pond in your backyard. Yep. So we, you know, we just don't want. We don't need people moving fish around. Uh, so blue catfish and snakeheads are now on the bad list, where it's a class one misdemeanor to move those fish. But that being said, people are still moving them. We've only made one case, arrested one person, convicted convicted that person. But um, apparently enough enough of a precedent hasn't been set because people are still you know moving them everywhere. Uh, the bottom line is now though we went from being sort of the heroes when we were out killing a lot of snakeheads to get biological information 15 years ago 
to now we're still doing the same thing because we're still trying to track that biological information. I mentioned you know, a moment ago about relative abundance and size structure. Well, with snakeheads, one of the things we're really trying to figure out is recruitment, that thing about spawning success. And what's that linked to? Is it linked to aquatic vegetation? Is it linked to, you know, some other factor that we don't understand yet because we don't know that much about these fish? And, and, and that's a bit of a mystery because we do know that we have very, very strong year classes that persist for years, almost, almost a decade. And we know that we have very weak year classes that persist an equal amount of time, which is, it's interesting and it's fascinating, you know, from a science perspective, but you, you know, why? You, you, we don't know why yet. And, and so we're trying to understand this and, and, and to understand to try to get at this, we need to know for sure if a fish is six years old or seven years old, because that's a big difference. You know, maybe if it was a seven-year-old fish, maybe that was a flood year or a drought year uh, and vice versa. So that that's why when we kill fish, we usually do it to extract the otolith or the ear bone. Some people make jewelry out of them from like a big drum or something, the sand and yep. drum really. They have huge otoliths. Um, and the otoliths are pretty cool. They're just a calcified structure that, you know, just bony ivory white. And, and that's, but that's how you age a fish. You don't age fish with scales. <clears throat> we did 30 or 40 years ago and it was, you'd be better off, you know, throwing darts at a dartboard. The real age of a fish. I mean, you can usually get within one or two years with a scale, but the older the fish gets, the worse the scales are, especially this far South. The further you go North where they have a, a bigger, you know, winter cold season where the fish is not growing at all, works a little better there. But, but from Virginia South, the scales are terrible. I mean, it's just garbage. So yeah. we, we have to use otoliths, especially when we want to know the exact year the fish will spawn. And so that's one of the reasons we're whacking these fish. So to get back to, the, you know, I go off on a lot of tangents. So so now people see it whacking these fish in the parking lot at the boat ramp, and they're, they're cussing us. They're pissed off because, you know, this guy just drove from Harrisonburg two hours away, took the day off to go catch snakeheads in his kayak, and, and here we are killing them. So he can't catch them. I say, oh, look, buddy, we just got a few. There's still plenty of them out there. Trust me. And there are. I'm not lying. But, I mean, still, you know, it's the visual of us taking his fish. And I get that. I mean, I might be a little pissed off, too, if I drove all that way. Uh, and so a bunch of state guys whacking and stacking on the deck of a pickup. So, um, you know, and I'll offer some fillets. Sir, would you, you know, take some fillets to, to mitigate your concern? <laughs> sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. Um, but anyway, we try to educate people and we try to explain to them what we're doing and why we're doing it. And, um you know, that's the bottom line is we still need to figure out where this thing's going. It's only 20 years in. Uh, the blue catfish took a lot longer to sort of run their course. But then again, you're dealing with a fish that lives probably three or four times as long and gets three or four times as large. Uh, so these things all factor into sort of the end run of, of what a, a non-native fish is going to do in, in some novel system where it finds itself. Gotcha. Wow, this is... <laughs> See, this is this is the podcast like I've been looking forward to for like, you know, a couple of weeks because I'm just like I'm ready to pick your brain for some of this like sciencey stuff and everything because I'm just like, man, what what questions am I going to ask him? And then I'm like, well, I'm going to let the conversation go where it's going to go. But then I'm gonna be like, oh, man, I'm trying to, you know, jot some things down for the show notes and everything. But I'm just like I'm getting all these like things in my head, too. I'm just like, oh, man, what about this? What about this? And it's so, yeah. It's fascinating too. And so like, I wanted to ask you about, um, you know, like the different seasons and stuff like that. So, cause I've noticed um, we do have like a river system kind of where I live. I'm, I'm in central Illinois and um, there's uh, what's called the Mackinac river. And it was notorious for flooding. I'd say 
about from like about a five to seven year span. And now it seems like we've kind of shifted now. We don't necessarily have the, uh, the flooding springs anymore. And so we had heard that in those five to seven year spans, when it was just constantly flooding, that the smallmouth weren't able to, you know, spawn or, you know, just didn't have like the spawning grounds to where they could spawn because, you know, it just, it would just flood. And then, you know, it kind of go down a little bit. Maybe they could try and go up and spawn, but then it flood again. So I'm curious about, you know, what happens during that time frame if a fish, you know, is ready to spawn and just there's nowhere to do it because of either A, it's just flooding so much because, you know, just the river system and the time of year, like they just don't spawn. Like what, what happens during those times of years? Uh, that, that, those are very good observations and very good questions. Um, so you pack to try to unpack that. Look, I'm going to look at this two ways. Number one is, is this whole phenomenon of, of spring flooding, uh, which is very, very valuable in many systems. Like spring flooding, and, and this is it's a highly dynamic in the river system, depending on where you're dealing. Um, normally, the larger the river system, I'm thinking Mississippi Delta. Uh, the more, or even the Nile, places like that, that that was taken away when they created uh, Lake Aswan. Um, but f- flooding is a dynamic process that nourishes the floodplain and, and Oxbow uh, River and connections and can be extremely valuable for certain species recruitment. In other words, without, without some of these natural processes like flooding, you typically have poor recruitment. Uh, so, so, but, but it, it's highly variable depending on the system and the species. So to, 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 to look at a smallmouth bass scenario, which you mentioned here in Virginia, um, I was working with a, a peer of mine named Scott Smith 10 to 15 years ago. And we started noticing that some years in Virginia, our smallmouth rivers had very poor recruitment. And, and, and then we noticed after a period of time, we started getting complaints from anglers. You know, fishing's terrible. Uh, what are you guys going to do about this? Or how can we fix this? And, and at that time, we didn't really know what was going on. And, and Scott initiated uh, with several of us in our own respective rivers in our districts to start doing some more investigations using those otoliths. Because, again, we have to know exactly what year that fish was spawned to try to correlate it with the flows in the river system. And, and we were able to produce a model. For three different rivers we worked on, the James, the Shenandoah, and the Rappahannock. Those are three. The not the new river in Virginia is probably our, our that's the only of the three I just mentioned where smallmouth bass are native. So many of the fish that we love and, and hold near and dear to our hearts here in Virginia are not native to Virginia. Large mouth, most of the large the Virginia is not native largemouth, not native smallmouth, um, crappy. I mean, all those those fish that you know, anyway, going off another tangent, but <laughs> suffice it to say that what we found out was so simple. That when we tried to publish a, a manuscript, the editors didn't believe it. It's like, oh no, no, no! It's got to be. It's got to be. You, you don't have enough covariance in here. This has to be more complicated. It's, there's no way it's this simple. But we had, th- and we we finally convinced them at, because we had three rivers, and all we had to do was look at, d- depending on the river, it was either median June flow, or me, I think, or median May flow, and and. This James River. The other two were, were June. So either, but but bottom line is, if you looked at the river flows in May or June, 
when the fish are going on the beds or on the beds and nursing the, the fry, if you had, it was, it's a Goldilocks principle. If you had a normal flow regime in that river system, you got a good year class. If you had a flood or drought, you got nothing or next to nothing. It sucked. Uh, and, and it was really easy to understand. And then we went back and started looking at that. And then we got to where we could predict it based on the flows in either May or June, depending on the river. We could dictate in, when we went out in September and October to catch those little 50, 60 millimeter baby smallmouth bass. We call them yoys, young of the year. <laughs> we, we could predict how many we would get with a, with a, a respectable confidence interval per hour of electrofishing effort. And that was fantastic because then we knew what was happening. We could explain to anglers, well, look, this is what's happening. This is why you're fishing socks now, because five years ago we had a terrible year class and four years ago we had a terrible year class. And three years ago we had an average year class. So, you know, normally mother nature, you know, she's going to throw you an S-bomb, you know, every three or four years. And that's fine. You, right. you make up for that if you have good ones on either side of it, because when you're catching, if you're out there largemouth fishing or smallmouth fishing, you're typically catch, the fish that you're catching, you know, the, the, the 12 to 20 inch fish, those are probably composed of about four or five year classes. So if you had a, you got a bad year class in there, one or two, it's not a big deal. But it, it, we, had play, we had a situation in the tidal Rappahannock and, and a lot of our tidal systems because of floods and droughts that overlapped for almost five years. We had we have four complete failures in one barely average year. So when you put that jagged hole in the fishery and then fast forward about four years down the road, there's no fish to catch for a tournament anglers or whoever. And that's when they're screaming bloody murder. So and that and that's exactly what happened. So what, how do you how do you remediate that? You know, and what so what we're trying to do is raise enough smallmouth bass so we know, like say, we, we know we've already got two bad year classes out of three and, and, and it's a drought this spring. Well, maybe we can raise enough fish to stock this fall to make up for that. And, and that's what we're trying to do. We have smallmouth bass are one of the notoriously hardest fish to, to rear in a you know, hatchery situation. But we're trying. Um, but we, 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 we've tried it with largemouth, and it's worked. To, in some cases, it's worked really well with largemouth. In some cases, it's been a waste of money. Conventional wisdom for remedial stocking, that is stocking uh, hatchery fish on an existing wild population, conventional wisdom on remedial stocking of black bass, which includes largemouth and smallmouth, is primarily a waste of money and time. We got in a, a little bit of a contest with a, with a group here about this exact scenario I just mentioned where we had five years really pretty much bad, and they wanted us to stock fish immediately. And we said, it's a waste of your time. Uh, and they went out and they raised a bunch of money, and they handed us a huge check. And they said, we want you to stock fish now. <sighs> what will you do with that? Right. <laughs> yeah. You're just like, well. so we said, look, as long as we can tell these fish apart from the, you know, these hatchery fish, because if any stocking program, you have to be able to discern the wild from the stock. Yes. Back in the day, 20, I'm talking about something that happened 15 to 20 years ago. The only thing to do was either immerse them in a bath of oxytetracycline, which stains their otolith. So when you look at it under UV light, it, it's, uh, it looks different than a normal otolith. So that's one way to mark them. You can put a little piece of metal in their snout. That's another way to mark them. It's a pain in the ass to scan them with a wand. Yeah. Um, and it's a pain in the ass to mark them in the hatchery. It's easier to put them in a bath of OTC. So that's what, that's what they did with these hatchery fish. They put them in a bath of OTC. They stocked them out in a smaller river than they wanted because they didn't have enough money to put them in the river they wanted. But in order to make a difference, you had to have enough fish. 
and you know we're talking you know six figures fish here you know hundreds of thousands of fish and so uh, but when the bottom line was in the system that we tried that first time on it was the most it was it went, that was published it was the most successful remedial black bass stocking ever well in a, in a tidal river ever and maybe ever ever uh so that and so then they were like oh yeah see we told you guys you need to stock fish we're like okay yeah it actually worked thank you very much for that um and then we tried it on some different systems and it was it was a failure just like the conventional literature so the bottom line is yeah, one thing i've learned through this process is that mother nature you know anything's possible um so you never say never with anything you know things can always work so um anyway so we, we all learned something from that the fishing got better uh and and honestly the, the, the one of the the rivers that we didn't stock that we told everybody was going to be back is now one of the best rivers in the state and it was never stopped so it, it's just you know it, it, mother nature will heal itself many times wow that's that's pretty amazing that you guys can you know it and hearing about it and thinking about it you know it it kind of basically is that simple, you know, when you really think about it, you know, just, you know, the, the weather patterns, was it a flood year? Was it a drought year? You know, you, human nature, we always want to put more to it. You know, it's just like, oh, well, it's got to be more than that. You know, surely there was something else going on. You know, we always want to put more to it, but you know, I mean, simplicity is, well, Hey, just, yeah, it was flooding. That's, that's basically all there was to it in a sense, you know, I mean, that's, that's very, very interesting. Um, uh, gosh, what was I going to say? I had a good thought. That I most, most, most of these freshwater fisheries, especially the black bass fisheries, are regulated primarily through environmental factors. People ask me a lot about bed fishing or taking, you know, taking uh, guard males off of nests. And it, it seems counterintuitive many times, but in most cases, it doesn't matter. The year class is going to be set based on environmental conditions. What happens to that fish or, or this fish, it doesn't matter in the wash. It comes out. It's either going to be a good year or a bad year. Uh, and, and those those fishermen, those those the the, the angler uh, the, the angler behaviors really in the end don't make much difference. It's the environment. And, and, and usually that comes down to flows. If you're in a tidal system, salinity comes into play. Habitat is an, an SAV, submerged aquatic vegetation comes into play. Nutrients, zooplankton, you know, when the fish hatch, is there adequate zooplankton, you know, based on nitrogen and phosphorus in the system? So all these things are environmentally related. It's not something we, as anglers you control through angler behavior. That's why I've never been a fan of, of catch and release during spawning times or, or spawning sanctuaries, all these things. In my opinion, especially in, in my part of the world, they're completely meaningless. Huh. Very interesting. Definitely some food for thought, you know. And, you know, I've not really been like a big, like, bed fishing angler myself, mainly because the waters that I fish, it's it's very, like, stained, dirty water. So, like, I can't necessarily, like, sight fish for bed fishing and whatnot. But, I mean, I've definitely heard, you know, people going back and forth. Well, you know, you shouldn't, you know, focus on bed fishing. It's going to, you know, mess with, uh, you know, the fish and all this and whatnot, you know. And I was going to ask you, too, you know, so, like, in boat tournaments and stuff like that, you know, you have bash that, you know, will be caught 
in some areas or whatnot. Will bass always stay in one area? Do they, will they always go back to the same area? Do they cruise around? Like what, what's your input on that? That's probably been one of the most studied aspects of, of fisheries science. And, you know, if you go to the journals, like, so we, we have a professional society called American Fishery Society, and, and we publish several journals in the AFS. One of them is called the North American Journal of Fisheries Management. Anybody can go to AFS. It's called fisheries.org. And, and you don't even need to be a member. You just go to fisheries.org and you can search the North American Journal of Fisheries Management for a tournament fish release or, or just come up with your own phrase. And you can look at all the abstracts without even paying anything or being a member. You can see all the abstracts from these peer-reviewed published papers that are out there and see for yourselves, you know, all the different studies that have been done for many, many years, decades uh, on, on big tournament fisheries. And the primary of these are Southeast U.S., but, but other places as well, natural lakes up north. And, and, um, I, and this is overly simplistic, but what I try to explain to people sort of, if, 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 if you try to synthesize, a guy named Gene Wild out of Texas did a really good job synthesizing tournament bass papers about 10 years ago. Uh, we call it like a meta, a meta, meta examination. And uh, bottom line is about a third of them return to where they were caught. About a third of them go somewhere completely different. And about a third of them kind of stay near where they're released. Um, that's the simplest way sort of to describe it. You know, of course it, could be vastly different depending on the scenario, but if you had to distill it into something fairly succinct, that would be it. Um, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I mean, these, these tournaments are happening. They, like I managed mentioned earlier, Lake Anna. Um, I mean, it's just an unbelievable number of tournaments. There's probably six or eight major access points where tournament weigh-ins occur, and, and, and we don't make any effort to redistribute fish as a state agency. And, and most of the anglers, I don't think they have a redistribution vessel. Some, some places do, I know in other states, but, but we don't. And, and, and uh, that fishery, the mortality rate in that fishery is among the lowest I've ever seen. The, the fish are, the longevity of those fish are as great as I've ever seen. Uh, and, and the fishery right now is as good as it's ever been. And I've been managing it for almost 30 years. Uh, and it's just an inordinate amount of tournament activity. So, you know, I, I, so a lot of times we have, issues with guides, you know, picking fights with tournaments, you know, trying to point fingers or you're, you're, you're hurting the resource doing this and that. And, and honestly, in, in most black bass fisheries now, and I think that holds true for even, you know, in the Midwest, the, re, the voluntary release rates are so high that th th there's essentially no impact from any delayed harvest. I mean, you know, you're going to have, when you have a tournament and you go through that and you're, you know, carrying around hundreds of fish in bags, um, there's going to be some delayed mortality from that. But the, what you have to look at is, is that more, because there's, there's a certain amount of natural mortality in any population. Okay. And every year and in, in, in bass population and in, in water body X, you know, there's going to be somewhere between a 15 and 25% natural mortality rate. So what you have to look at from these tournaments, even if it's 99 plus percent release, which is what we see, uh, is, is, is the mortality that's related to stress, handling, hook and release, is that either additive to the natural mortality or is it compensatory? Is, is it, are those fish that are going to die anyway? And in most cases, it's compensatory. Those fish are going to die anyway. So the fish that die in the population are already gone. It doesn't matter. It's a wash. 
Um, occasionally, if you have a really poorly run tournament or in a given scenario, maybe where the water quality is not good or, you know, you can sort of pick your, your theory of what's happening, you could have additive mortality from a, a, an event. So it's not unheard of. But in most cases, at least in my experience, additive mortality is not the case. It's compensatory mortality. So we can rest easy that what we're doing uh, as, as tournament groups and uh, resource managers, it, it, this is not hurting the resource. It's, it's just fine. Awesome. <clears throat> Definitely awesome food for thought there. <laughs> I've never done um, like boat tournaments or anything per se. I've only done uh, things from uh, the kayak perspective and in the kayak uh you know we're all catch photo release you know so that's you know kind of what i've been used to but i've, I've definitely you know seen the boat weigh-ins and stuff like that so I, i've always definitely been curious you know thinking about some of these different things and whatnot you know and heard um you know different tales and whatnot well you know you got to do this to the fish and the live well make sure they stay alive and make sure you do all these different things and then i've heard the stories of people pouring you know, Sprite or Coke on them to revive them and stuff like that. I'm just like, man, what's up with all that? I mean, I can kind of get it with like, you know, if they got them from lowering the lake and brought them up with it, you know, being 20 degree different, stuff like that, oxygen levels, stuff like that. Um, you know, I'm sure there's different sciences when it comes about those types of things too. Um, the biggest the biggest thing is just for people to try to avoid having tournaments in the hottest parts of the year yes <laughs> you know that because because most people a lot some people don't know the warmer the water the lower the oxygen you know physiologically the less oxygen can be in that water and so fish just are more prone to stress in warm water so anytime the water temperature gets above the mid 80s it's just not a good idea to have tournaments you know just 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 have, you know, do something else for a month or two months when the, when the water temperatures are that high. Uh, but other than that, you know, they're, they're pretty resilient. Yep. Awesome. Awesome. So I wanted to kind of jump back a little bit, you know, talking about like, you know, native species to Virginia, um, you know, how and when were, you know, like bass and other species introduced into mm -hmm you know, the different lakes and streams, um, you know, and I guess like why it was it more of a, was some of it accidental? Was, was, uh, some of it, you know, just for like, for the sport, you know, type thing, you know, what, what's the primary purpose of, you know, the, the non-native fish being introduced? Unfortunately, perhaps, and most likely fisheries management, which is what I do now, a hundred years ago was let's put fish in this big tub on a railroad car and ship it this way, four or 500 miles and whatever water body we find, we're going to throw those fish in there and see what happens. That's what people did. That was fisheries management. The federal government did that. Um, that's why we have, that's why we have smallmouth bass everywhere. We have them and largemouth bass and, and black crappie and uh, rainbow trout. It's, that that was fisheries management. There, there was literally no thought given to native species, any consequence from invasive action. People just put fish and transport and, and put them wherever they could. Johnny Appleseed, fish everywhere. <laughs> it, it, honestly, that's what yeah. that. And, and so even as early as the as late, excuse me, as the 1970s, 
we had people in my agency. That's how blue catfish got distributed all over in the mid Atlantic was because somebody, <coughs> excuse me, thought it would be a good idea to put blue catfish in the tidal river. At that point, striped bass stocks were down a little bit. And uh, I guess they were looking for some other, you know, potential trophy, uh, which, you know, you can go out and catch 150, 160 pound fish. That's kind of cool. But yeah. um, they did the Johnny Appleseed with blue catfish in, in all of Virginia tidal tributaries of the Chesapeake Bay. And, and now that, and they're in the Potomac now. Um, we didn't put them there, but they got there on their own or somebody moved them there. Either one, they, they probably, probably both. Uh, but bottom line is it, it took 30 years for, for really for that nexus to be fully revealed um, because that fish is such a long lived fish and for the population to reach some equilibrium, which apparently it has, it's like snakeheads hit it in about 10 years, blue cats, it took 30 uh, and, and the numbers seem to be dropping a little bit, but anyway, it's still like, I think the Maryland governor just declared a state of emergency over invasive fish, blue catfish and snakeheads are destroying our universe. It's like, okay. Um, but the bottom line is, you know, they're being caught by commercial fishermen. They're making money from those fish. Um, I'm not saying it was a good thing they were introduced, but it happened. And, and at the time it was sort of the way things worked. Now, you know, we would never in, the, in this day and age, make a introduction like that uh you know given that that species wasn't present in the system or um without any you know any thought or care for uh for our native or beneficial naturalized species so even now when the snakehead just showed up 20 years ago people are screaming about well we need to protect the largemouth bass you know all our native fish and i'm like well largemouth aren't native and the people go really surprised when i tell them largemouth bass aren't native they're like, no, well, they've been here since 1880, you know, when somebody brought them here on a rail car. Um, and so we think of them as native, but probably in 1880, they were really damn invasive. Uh, whatever was here back then probably didn't take kindly to this monster fish, like just sucking everything up, uh, which I'm sure they did back then. But they've done well. And of course, they're, you know, the number one game fish in the world. Uh, and so, you know, I think 70% of our anglers fish for, for largemouth bass at one time or another. So, uh, you know, it's obviously it's the bread and butter sport fish on the planet. Uh, so, you know, we, we want to take care of managing them properly, but at the same time recognize that they're pretty badass fish in and of their own right and can and hold up against any snakehead uh, as Lake Biwa in Japan fishers management can attest to, um, you know, they had, they had their beautiful snakehead population for a hundred years and then some idiot induced largemouth bass and the snakeheads took a nosedive uh, and they hate the largemouth bass. So there you go. <laughs> Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> I did not know that about uh, the whole, you know, let's put them in a rail car and just yeah. go across the country and just throw them yeah. in a pond here. That's, <laughs> I mean, it doesn't surprise me by all means. It doesn't surprise me at all, but that that kind of blows my mind a little bit. You know, it's just like, oh, hey, here's a here's a lake over here. Let's just th throw some fish in here and see what happens. <laughs> go, go forth and do God's work. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the American way, almost in a sense, you know. <laughs> it's just, wow! Oh man, gosh, that's that's wild. <laughs> um, let's see here. Gosh, what else do I want to ask you? Um, I guess maybe um, you know what uh, what I guess what unique experiences or encounters have you had? Um, while out in the field, you know, maybe like, you know, I don't know if you've had like scary encounters or awesome encounters or just like, you know, oddball ones or just, you know, 
anything goes or whatnot, you know, what have been some really interesting stories? Uh, well, as you could imagine, people always ask. I, I do a lot of demonstrations and teach classes. A lot of times we'll use our survey gear or electric fishing boat. And when people first hear about water and electricity, they're always a little sketched out. You know, it's like we've always heard that isn't really a good combination. Valid. Um, and so probably, you know, when you asked about weird experiences or scary, uh, we were on a river survey in 20 years ago. And we, we had a lot of we were doing a smallmouth bear survey on the Rappahannock River uh, right near I-95 in Fredericksburg near my office. And we had a bunch of people. We had a we call this a depletion survey. So I, I mentioned this whole relative abundance idea when we do a, a survey and we can tell you how many fish per hour we catch. Well, at this kind of survey, we're, we're trying to deplete all the fish within a sample reach of the river. And then we, we theoretically catch every fish. Or if we don't, we model it out so we did. And then we can tell you exactly how many fish are in that reach of river. And if we do three or four reaches of river, we can average that in the whole river system and we can come up with a realistic estimate of how many smallmouth bass are in the whole river, which is pretty meaningful information. Yeah. So anyway, we were doing one of the first ones of these we ever did. In fact, we published a paper on this too. It was pretty cool in that North American Journal um, because people back in those days were doing depletions on little tiny streams. They were trying to deplete a big river system right above the tide. Uh, and we were doing that and, and we were coming up with some pretty neat info, but we were also near the fall line, which is where the, the physiographic provinces join. So you have the Piedmont meeting the coastal plain, which is where the head of the tide is. And so a lot of times right in that area, you've got a lot of like riffles and rapids and braids and, and, and like stuff you think about kayaking through, not necessarily slowly floating through. Mm-hmm. And we were coming upstream and we hit a, 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 essentially a, a block where we had to, everybody had to get out of the boat. And we had to, these are relatively lightweight electrofishing boats, John boats that are like 14 feet, generator, pulse box. And, and we were all prepared to get out with chest waders on and push this boat around uh, these blockages. This one guy who was my boss's friend at the time, he didn't have chest waders on. And he'd gotten out to help push. And then we had an intern that wasn't familiar with the boat we were on because it was it was not our boat. And we have a couple safety devices, but the driver had not shut off the pulse box and, the, and there was no foot pad on the front of the deck, which he was the, this intern was used to the foot pad on the deck. So when the intern jumped back in the boat, um, he went up on the deck of the boat and the thing was still running and the guy got in the back. And then when, when, when this other person was still in the water, went to get in the boat, he touched the boat and essentially uh, connected the circuit and, and he got laid out like a fish and, uh, and, and he literally turned white, white as a ghost. And uh, I, I, you know, I, I was, I was scared. I jumped out. I, he was stiff. He was like literally stiff. I dragged him up on a sandbar and I was about to administer CPR and he woke up and, and said, please don't do that. Got a little stunned there. Holy cow. Yeah, he was and he, he did go to the doctor the next day and got checked out and he, he was OK. But he, he was he was. He was white as he could be, man. He was, it's a good thing he didn't have a pacemaker, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that was, it was a good lesson for everybody because, you know, we, we went over it that night and, and basically figured out what went wrong and why it went wrong. And, you know, different staff 
unfamiliarity with the gear, using different people's gear. And it's sort of one of those crisis situations, you know, everybody feels like, oh, I got to help out. I got to get out, you know, help push or whatever. And, you know, just perfect storm. But luckily it didn't go bad. Right. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> Still, though. Yeah. It's just like, oh, man, that. Uh, oof. <laughs> it was cool, though, when he woke up. Yeah. <laughs> just like, oh, don't do that. <laughs> Please don't do that. I mean, my, my, I was about this close, you know, mouth to mouth on. Like 15, but see, I, I was, I was on the old school. I, I'd still do 15 compressions to two breaths. I, I think now they say no breaths, but I'm still 15. I, I'll never they, get it. They've changed two. it so much. You know, it was 15 to two, then it was 30 to two. And then now it's just compression. Yeah, I know. It, and it depends which, uh, which uh, agency it's either if you get certified with American heart or if you do, um, Oh, what's the other one? Like, Red Cross or something yeah, like Red, that. Red Cross is what we do. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it just, it depends. So yeah, they're, they're all different. <laughs> so yeah. Anywho. Um, yeah, this has been uh, definitely some very awesome information. Um, let's see here. I'm trying to think if there's anything else I wanted to ask you here. Um, wow. This is, this is great stuff. I love it. Um, I know uh, before we uh, start recording, you uh, don't have like a social media presence or whatnot, which is totally fine. But uh, if people wanted to look up uh, maybe uh, more about the uh, Virginia WD, D, oh my gosh, <laughs> DWR, or maybe uh, find uh, some of the data that you might collect or whatnot, uh, where can folks maybe uh, look up some of that at? Is there like so, a yeah, website? Just- yeah, dwr.virginia.gov, um, and they'll get there, and, and then there's a place they can go and just say, "Hey, uh, please send this to John Odenkirk," and, okay. and uh, or whatever, whatever they may have any question, it'll get routed the appropriate place. Okay. Awesome. Good stuff. Well, um, do you have anything else that uh, you want to share? Or I guess uh, one other question I wanted to have is. Um, you know, to anglers out there who are maybe wanting to, you know, maybe do more as far as like, you know, you know, helping fish species, uh, conservation, that type of stuff. Do you have any uh, suggestions or anything for folks who are listening? What I've really found helpful throughout my career are catch records from, from either individuals or from clubs. If you can keep track, and you need to quantify the most important part is quantifying your effort because the catch data mean almost nothing unless we have some context of effort how much time was spent in this pursuit so if you just keep like a small journal um of, of how many hours on a given resource and then how many fish of whatever species you caught and released or caught and kept and then the rough sizes that information is very, very, we call that a creel survey if we're doing it officially and interviewing anglers at a boat ramp or wherever a roving is going from boat to boat or person to person along a river. But typically it's an access point creel survey. But, but, but if you just keep your own personal journal and can provide that to your local biologist, that is really helpful and meaningful uh, it's because, because that's a piece of information that we don't get when we're out there you know, surveying and getting the, the fishery dependent data you know, what size, how many are there, but we're not getting, you know, for, for the anglers, how many are you catching and what size are they? And, and sometimes they match up, but sometimes they don't. 
Um, and, and then sort of in your, in your satisfaction, you know, do you, do you think this is good or bad or, or you know, whatever. So th- that, that information is very helpful for us. And, and so if you can kind of keep that in a simple tabulated format um, and, and then, you know, let that be available, um, that, that's wonderful stuff. Awesome. Yeah, I know um, a lot now with uh, the kayak fishing tournaments, we use uh, mainly two different platforms now. There's Tourney X and uh, now there's Fishing Chaos. And I know that that data, <clears throat> so everything is done by fish length, which I know was probably pretty helpful for you guys. Um, so I know all of that. So each angler that submits a fish, it'll download all of the fish that they caught, even if it got cold. It'll download all that data. And then if needed too, we can uh, get like, you know, the GPS location that we can submit to, uh, you know, local fish biologists too. So that's definitely good to know too. That, uh, Thank you. Submit that to you know, our local fish biologists. Very helpful. Awesome. Good stuff. Um, anything else that you wanted to share with us? No, just just thank you for allowing me the option to be on your platform. Yes, and thank you. Definitely uh, lots of awesome information here. Um, Yes, love it so much. Um, Yeah, thank you again for uh, being on here. And uh, yeah, so guys, thanks again for uh, joining us on another episode of Bass Fishing for for Noobs, where we give you the tricks, the techniques, and tips to help you rip more lips. And I totally messed that up like I know I would. (laughs) But that's how it goes. So uh, we'll see you guys next time on the next show. Have a good night. Good luck, Sean.